Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. John O'Neill joins us today. He is a lawyer and a writer. Uh, author of a book called Unfit for Command. That was about the John Kerry Swift Boat episode, for those of you of a, of a certain age, and also a book called The Fisherman's Tomb, which is uh, about the, uh, the search for the site of the burial of St. Peter. His new book is The Dancer and the Devil, Stalin, Pavlova, and the Road to the Great Pandemic. That is our topic today. Welcome, Mr. O'Neill. Thank you very much, Mark. It's an honor to be on your podcast. Right off the bat, who was Anna Pavlova? Anna Pavlova was the greatest uh, dancer, ballerina of all time. Um, uh, much of the history of ballet revolves around Anna Pavlova. Um, she was the great uh, student of a man named Mario uh, Petita, who was the guy who who actually did Swan Lake and, and uh, almost every... Russian ballet you've ever heard of, The Pharaoh's Daughter, um, on and on and on. She became very famous. She she was a little tiny woman, only five feet tall. She was rejected originally for the Russian Imperial Ballet, but she showed up at the age of 15 and Petita saw her, and he said she was every ballet master's dream. At that point, he was almost in his 80s, and uh, she had an ability to convey emotion uh, there were other great athletic ballerinas, and she wasn't one of those. But when she moved and moved her arms and moved her face, she could convey incredible emotion. She became famous for a, a dance called The Dying Swan, and it portrayed a, a swan in the last moments of life. To a lot of people, it represented the, the dividing line between life and death. And uh, so you could look at it, and if you didn't believe in another life, you, you saw the tragedy of, of someone dying. If you did believe in another life, you actually saw a sort of resurrection occurring in front of you. She danced more than 4,000 times that dance. It became the most famous short ballet in the world, performed all over the world still. And uh, she left Russia in 1914 to go on a tour. She there was outside of Russia when the uh, revolution occurred. Um, she never went back. In 1927, Stalin, she became the most famous ballerina in the world. She danced all over the world, first with the Ballet Russe in Paris, and then in her own show. She went to South America. To well, jo jo John, let me, let, me, let, me, let me stop you there because we'll, we'll get into those details of those, those last few years. I, I just wanted to get, uh, you know, the general opening about about her and your description of that dying swan. There is a film, actually, I think you mentioned in, in the book 
the film of we have film of one of her performances of the dying swan and you get it you really see the the extraordinary impact that she would have and you mentioned her arms uh, the, her her arms in that piece are they're swan's wings uh, happening there I'll, I'll i'll mention you know the swan that 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 musical piece is it's cello and a harp uh in in the version that you you get on youtube it's it's one of the basics in the suzuki curriculum uh the strings curriculum my son played it i i i recognized it from my son doing doing cello in book three or book four i can't remember where where the swan is but i i urge listeners here you just type in pavlova swan onto youtube and you'll and you'll see just Mark, exactly what, what you are describing. What's yeah. interesting about the deal on YouTube is also who filmed it. It was filmed by her, her close friends, Mary Pickford and John Barrymore Jr., two of the greatest actors actresses in history. They did it in Hollywood because they were trying very hard to get her to come to Hollywood. They were worried about her. They were trying to get her to come to Hollywood to be in movies, and, and she wouldn't. And that was the purpose of filming that almost as a screen test. And uh, they made many offers to her. She, she, as we'll learn in just a second, turned them down. But it's interesting who filmed it too, and that's why it survives. One of the great things about your book is your description of the historical contexts of these individuals' lives, Pavlova and Diaghilev and, and other arts, artists in, in the early 20th century. Let me ask you about a few of those events. Uh, what was the Imperial Ball of 1903. Uh, an amazing thing. There have been exhibitions of the uh, costumes there all over the world, most prominently at the Victoria Museum in London. Uh, but at the Imperial Ball, it, it, the uh, Romanovs held an Imperial Ball every winter in January or February in St. Petersburg. And it was the high point of the entire social season. The very last one was in 1903, and it was the greatest one. And they had roughly 400 people attending. A lot of the costumes were by uh, the the great jeweler, uh, great jewelers, and so on. And the costumes themselves are remarkable. Some of them, uh, some cost millions of dollars in today's money to actually put together. The costumes were used. You can see them in Star Wars. They were reproduced in Star Wars and other other hmm. uh, costumes. It began with a dinner. And then people moved into to the ballet. And so we had young, uh, you know, 18, 19-year-old Anna Pavlova. And they danced at the swan, Swan Lake. And who dances Swan Lake but Anna Pavlova, who's not even a prima grand ballerina at that point. And everyone goes, my God, what is this talent? Who is this person? And all of a sudden, she captures the heart of Russia in those two days. Hmm. Uh, what, and what was the generally... What was the state of the arts in Russia in that decade, in 1905? Well, uh, Russia had, you know, of course, incredibly well-developed literature and music. Uh, they had Tchaikovsky. I mean, they had, uh, as you know, a whole, you know, I heard someone say that, you know, other people uh, produced great concerts and so on. But what Tchaikovsky did was produce ballet, and he really did. The great ballets come originally from Tchaikovsky. Mm. And uh, so they had great literature, great art, and so on. 
Um, it was a developing country at the time. Uh, it lost great face in the Japanese War of 1905, where the Russian Navy was destroyed at Tsushima. They then, not too long after, got a mesh in World War I in 1914. And of course, they became cannon fodder for the much technologically superior German and Austrian armies. And uh, so the entire culture of Imperial Russia got ground up in World War I. Hmm. Pavlova and Diaghilev. Actually, maybe, who was Diaghilev? Diagolov was a sort of an interesting character. There's never been anybody quite like Diagolov in history. Diagolov was a producer. He had the genius of putting together great people. He recognized great talent. And so uh, the two, maybe the two greatest composers of the 20th century, Stravinsky and Prokop, well, he recognized them both as just young students and had them do their very first works for him. Coco Chanel was a nobody when Diaghilev discovered her. And he discovered them, uh, Nijinsky, any number of great ballet stars. And so he could actually put together, uh, and uh, he could put them together with great artists like Picasso and Brock and uh, Matisse. And right. he became, Picasso did the sets. He did. For some of, some of these ballet, uh, extraordinary ballet productions. And you, you, you got Diaghilev doing what, the, the, the Rites of Spring, among he, others. Diaghilev uh, did a whole sequence, but Diaghilev was the guy that put it all together. He, uh, he once was asked by the King of Spain, uh, what do you do exactly? Because he wasn't a composer himself. He wasn't a dancer. And he said, well, I'm like you, Your Majesty. Uh, without me, I do nothing. But without me, nothing happens. Uh -huh. And so that's what Diaghilev's genius was. He was the ultimate great producer. He had conception, too, of things like Rite of Spring. He had the, the idea, too, that you could do all of a sudden everything completely differently than it had ever been done before, and it would actually work. And then he could assemble the talent to actually do that. He had incredible courage. He was, he was uh, gay in a period of time when that was a, you know, a, 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 an imprisonable offense, but he didn't try and hide who he was at all. And what he did in 1917, when it looked like Paris was going to fall to the Germans, he produced this comedy ballet to raise everybody's spirits called ballet, uh, called Parade. And he was, uh, he was an amazingly uh, courageous guy in his own way, um, something that, as was uh, Pavlova. There's nobody in ballet that dances in front of a huge audience that doesn't have a considerable amount of, of courage in their own way. Indeed. Pavlova and Diaghilev, and others in, in their circle, they welcomed the revolution of 1917, correct? The first they got, revolution. They did. They were, you know, they were sucked into the idea of reform. Um, there's an old Chinese proverb that says, he who abandons the good in favor of the perfect sometimes ends up with the very, very bad. And so they saw evident abuses in Imperial Russia that needed to be corrected. They wanted to move towards a more democratic system. Of course, what they ended up with was a, a horrific tyranny and slaughter uh, everywhere. Um, that's not what they foresaw, nor what they were in favor of. But initially, they were in favor of, of reform and change in the imperial system. Was it the murders of the czar and his family that 
did that immediately turn them? Did they, did they realize, oh my goodness, this revolution is not what we thought it was? Well, uh, remember that the murders of the czar and his little girls and so on were all concealed for 90 years. The Soviets simply said, we have no idea what happened to them. They've disappeared. Of course, everybody believed that they were murdered, but by 1920, the murders were so massive in Russia that there was no denying them. The, any nobles that were caught were executed. Uh, there were slaughters openly. Um, in 1921, there were slaughters of the leading people in the Russian Orthodox Church in the streets of Moscow in Red Square. And so it became immediately evident that this was not some democratic thing with people voting. This was, uh, this was the, the tyrants taking over. You have a powerful description of a performance she gave at that, in 1919 in another country undergoing a revolution in Mexico City. Well, what was she doing there? How did she get down there and what did she do? What happened? Mexico uh, had a checkered history. Madera was, a, was a, uh, really a great Democrat. He tried to reform Mexico, was the first real Democratic president. He was murdered by a man named Huerta, who was a tyrant. That led to revolution in Mexico with Pancho Villa and Zapata and various people. And they installed a Democratic president named Carranza. And uh, Carranza didn't prove radical enough for the radicals. And so they hated Carranza, and there was still ferment revolution in Mexico. Carranza invited Pavlova to come dance as a part of becoming a peaceful country. She arrived at Veracruz, and, and uh, Zapata and Villa said if she continued to Mexico City, they were going to kill her. Typical of Pavlova, she got on the train with 400, uh, 200 soldiers on top of the train, according to her husband, and went right to Mexico City. Hmm. She danced in the bullring in Mexico City in front of 32,000 people. And uh, that was the, the greatest night of ballet in the history of Mexico, maybe the greatest night of ballet in human history. Hmm. Um, she Not only did she dance the dying swan, but she took... Uh, a, a um, folk dance, uh, the Mexican half dance, which everybody had scorned, and she turned it into a ballet called the Tarot Tapico and choreographed it. And then she danced it that night in Mexico City. It became the national dance of all of Mexico. It's still danced here in Texas every uh, Cinco de Mayo. People dance it. It is the national dance of Mexico. What was hmm. danced the first night that night she danced in front of 32,000. She could have been killed at any time. In the middle of it all, from out of the audience, who arises but Pablo Casal, the greatest uh, cellist in all of human history, arguably, and he begins playing. And so she dances to his music. Her husband hmm. said it was the greatest she ever danced. Yeah. It was really the bravest she ever danced. You know, you, you, you mentioned, you know, Rites of Spring, Stravinsky, The Firebird, another, another production. How did the, the ballet russe affect, in those years, affect art generally in Europe? It became the, the center point of all art. It put everything together. If you think about uh, Phantom of the Opera, which was astounding for the staging, you know, Phantom in the United States combined so many different things in art craft. Well, these ballets, uh, the very first one, Firebird, it had a cast of 140 including the orchestra. And uh, it all of a sudden you had fabulous art 
in the in the staging, you had fabulous costumes by unbelievable people, and you had wonderful music and then great choreography combined with great dancing. So you were combining five different types or six different types of art all at the same time. And this yeah. guy, Diagolov, is getting people like Picasso to do the staging. He's getting uh, Nijinsky to do the dancing. He's getting uh, Prokof and Stravinsky to do the music. And all of a sudden, he's putting together the greatest geniuses in all of Europe to do the, to do the actual art. And so it became yeah. the focal point each year People look forward to what are the productions of the Ballet Russe. People came from all over the world just to see them. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Why don't we move to the devil for a moment? <laughs> and you, you, you turn to something going on after the revolution in Russia. What was Laboratory One? Well, what well, did they do there? Joseph Stalin seized power in, in Russia, as the book relates. He was, uh, by the end, by 1925, an inhuman monster that took delight in killing people, actually joyed in their, in their death to a degree even the other horrible tyrants didn't seem to do in the period. And um, he had a problem. His problem was he had to kill people deniably. There were some people that you simply couldn't let the public know you had killed. You, you know, you could make me disappear and nobody noticed really, but you couldn't take somebody really famous and have them disappear. And that was his problem. And uh, it began when with the massacre of uh, uh, Russian Orthodox churchmen in Russia in 1921. And so because of that, he started a poison laboratory called Laboratory One, initially dealing in organic poisons and later in biological warfare as well. It had a whole series of, of early victims. They included the head of the KGB, Felix Dzinski, known as Iron Felix. Likely, Lenin was likely killed, poisoned by Stalin, and the evidence is in the book, one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, and it, he moved on to other, other people that he killed, and he killed a large succession uh, people. He murdered first in Russia his opponents and his Lenin's secretaries, Vernov, and then he moved outside of Russia and he began murdering white Russians and opponents outside of Russia that he saw as a threat to himself. In 1927, he passed a law that said if you didn't come back to Russia when you were summoned, that was a capital offense. And so all of a sudden, I guess you could say uh, Laboratory One moved from just strict retail poisonings in Russia into sort of wholesale poisonings all around the world. And these artists and musicians, dancers, fell, uh, fell onto the list, right? The kill list. Before we get into the specifics of that, why, why did Stalin care about what a bunch of artists were doing uh, in, in other countries? 
1928, and Stalin began what was called the Great Cultural Revolution, the first one, uh, unlike the one that occurred and killed millions later in China, the theory behind the Great Cultural Revolution of 1928, which came from a, a writer and then from Stalin, was that you had to control the mind of man itself. It wasn't enough to control um, just politics or the means of production like Lenin and, and Engel had talked about. You actually had to control all of culture, music, history. You had to rewrite history. You had to eliminate words like God from the language. If you could eliminate the word God, nobody could be religious. If you could, um, if you rewrote history, all of a sudden, uh, to eliminate anything good, then you know it was evident. However bad things were under you, they were better than they used to be. And so, to do that, he began wiping out musicians uh, in Russia and in the Ukraine, uh, poets, writers, uh, and uh, they were all targets. And he killed. You know, them all. one thing that you you discuss. John, you know, di he didn't just go after Diaghilev. He went after his family, the nephews, the children. I mean, I mean you, he, he would wipe out the whole extended family that was still in Russia of these musicians. That's how far it went, isn't, didn't it? Well, it, it's a typical terror technique. Uh, you're a brave fellow, and you might be willing to stand up to Stalin even at the risk of your own life. But are you willing to stand up if your children are going to get killed? If your nephews and nieces are all going to die because you stand up to him? And if you know that uh, not just you, your wife, your daughter, they're all gone? And so Stalin was a master of terror, and he understood that. And that's why when he got a guy like Diaghilev, he didn't just get Diaghilev. He got every, all the Diaghilevs everywhere, wherever they could be found to be destroyed. Were, were Pavlova, Diaghilev, and, and others, were they outspokenly critical of Stalin from abroad? Not exactly. Uh, they, they didn't... Um, what they really did, or uh, what Pavlova's sin was, was that she danced the Russian imperial ballets all over the world. And uh, she danced them in Europe, and she danced them in Poland, which had been Soviet territory. Diaghilev's sins were the same. He produced uh, Christian ballet, like the Prodigal Son. Um, they were friends of the of the pretenders to the Roman throne. They supported, uh, in particularly in Paris, she supported starving emigres uh, and and orphans and so on who were uh, had fled from Russia, and so that made her a tremendous enemy of Stalin practically. She was a cultural enemy, and to a little degree, she supported people that uh, he saw as enemies. Yeah. All right, what happened to Diaghilev? In 1928, um, actually in 1929, in 1928, Diaghilev's entire family vanished in Russia. Uh, we know now that they were sent to concentration camps. And in 1929, Diaghilev went to uh, Venice, and he died suddenly and inexplicably in Venice. We don't know how he died, and they didn't know at the time how he died. The diagnosis was blood poisoning. He died suddenly and inexplicably. Uh, three or four days after his death, his brother was executed in the concentration camp in Russia where he was held. A remarkable coincidence, and mm -hmm. so on. Um, 
It was one of many coincidental deaths. I, I of course, believe that he was poisoned by Stalin using a group that uh, called Yasha's gang that is outlined in the, in the book. Yeah. They operated in Paris and killed many, many people. Much about them is known now. All right. The final days of Pavlova. What happened? Well, uh, Pavlova became concerned, I think, for her own safety. In 1929, around the same time Diaghilev was killed, Pavlova's uh, tr trust that she had set up in Russia to take care of orphans and ballerinas was seized by the Soviet government, and she was declared an enemy of the Soviet people, a death penalty offense. Um, she had been summoned back to Russia and refused to come before that. They'd even sent her mother to see her, who tried to get her to come back, and she wouldn't come. And Or how they got the mother, we don't know. Um, in 1929 and 1930, Stalin sent a woman who was probably his mistress, but was certainly the highest ranking uh, Soviet diplomat in the world, a woman named uh, Anna Kolotov, <clears throat> to go out and try and get governments to refuse to allow Pavlova to perform. So she went to Norway, to Sweden, and to other governments and said, the Russian government asked you to stop her from performing. They laughed at them, and they let Pavlova continue performing. So there was no way to stop her performances. Her friends all begged her to come to Hollywood. Uh, she wouldn't. And in 1930, <clears throat> she actually uh, told her friends that she felt a sword of Damocles over her head. Nobody knew about the poisoning ring in Russia at this point, in Paris at this point in time, but they knew people were dying, just suddenly, inexplicably dying. Some of them were murdered on the streets of Paris. And so she felt great apprehension. Her friends tried to get her to come back to Hollywood. They, she wouldn't come. As I indicated, they made a screen test. She had many offers to go. Instead, she announced her 1931 uh, tour, and it was going to go right to the boundary of Russia and Poland. So it was in your face, sort of. She uh, ate lunch at the Ritz Hotel in Paris at the very beginning in early January of 1931. And immediately after eating lunch, she climbed on the train. As soon as she climbed on the train, maybe 20 minutes after eating lunch, 30 minutes, she said, I was poisoned by the food in Paris, and I'm really, really sick. And she began having trouble breathing, and her lungs began to fill up with water. They summoned doctors immediately. She kept telling everybody she had been poisoned. Now, who would poison a ballerina? Nobody listen to that. The doctors did everything they could. They finally drained her lung. It wasn't enough to save her. She finally got her, her cast around on the train. And later in her bed in the Hotel Dos Indus in, in uh, The Hague. And she swore them to go forward with the performance, even if she was not there, even if she was dead. They brought her her costume to her, the same costume that she had danced the dying swan in. She held it to herself. She made the sign of the cross, and she died. Hmm. And uh, the very next night, they did go forward with the show in front of the king, queen of Belgium, and others. And every place where she was supposed to dance, they simply showed a spotlight on the stage in the place that she would have been because they said there was no way to have an understudy for Anna Pavlova. 
There was no one else in the world who could dance like Anna Pavlova. Later, <clears throat> there was a film made to commemorate her by her friends called The Grand Hotel. It won the Oscars, the best movie of the year in 1932. Um, there were many thousands at her funeral and her death was a mystery really until this book. <clears throat> you proceed well beyond that ending into the, the history of these, these poison labs, bio-war labs in, in Russia and then in North Korea and, and into China. Uh, just to give people a taste as we wrap it up, what was the bio-war leak of 1939? In 1939, um, Hitler, I mean, uh, Stalin had begun big bio-war facilities at a place called Saratov in Russia that are still in operation today. They're still, they were sanctioned by the U.S. a year and a half ago. They're making them at exactly the same facilities, a bio-war facility. What they were doing is taking plague, uh, anthrax, which is a series of bacterial spores, and other diseases and turning them into weapons. 1939, Stalin and Beria summoned the head of that project, a guy named Abram Berlin, into uh, Moscow to meet with them. He came to Moscow, he went to the Hotel Nacional in Moscow, the big hotel. He began coughing, so they summoned a doctor. The doctor came up and the doctor said, my God, Abram, he said, you've got pneumonic plague said, we haven't seen pneumonic plague in Moscow in 300 years. And pneumonic plague in those days was invariably fatal. Yeah. They immediately isolated anybody in contact with him. They all died. The doctor died. Abram huh. died. Uh, they isolated the hotel, evacuated it. They claimed there was a plumbing failure in the hotel, and they uh, sealed it. Five or six people died of pneumonic plague in Moscow. That was the first great leak that I'm aware of, of bioweapons in, in human history, followed by other leaks in 1972, 79, and finally at Wuhan. Uh, that, and, and we want to, I, I want to tell our listeners that you do track these, these labs. You go into things such as, quote, the, the big daddy uh, disappearances uh, that, that took place. Uh, lab one, it's interesting, these people who were leading lab one, they end up getting liquidated by Stalin too, don't they? Every time. He, they always liquidate the liquidators. It's the rule of Marxism. I, I would have to tell you, we fell in love with the story of Pavlova. And so we were really writing a Pavlova book. And then we ran into all these other people murdered by Stalin using laboratory one. And so, okay. And then we learned that from... Uh, really a book called Biohazards written by the number two guy in the Soviet bioweapons program who defected. We learned that it didn't stop with Stalin, that it went on and on and on through human history. All right, we were going to be all done with the book. And then what happens? COVID-19 happens. We go look and they've got exactly the same bio-war labs in China, 15 of them. And uh, so at that point, People who started out in love with Pavlova and wanting only to write a, a romantic book really about Pavlova ended up having to write a book to present the truth about what actually happened. And so that's how the book sort of came about and yeah. took four years to write. 
The book is The Dancer and the Devil, Stalin, Pavlova, and the Road to the Great Pandemic. John O'Neill, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. I enjoyed being on your, on your podcast. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.